0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining me. It's Nicole from Coleology, a consciousness podcast, and today I have Dr. Paul J. Leslie, and he is a licensed psychotherapist, psychology professor, a workshop presenter that resides in Aiken, South Carolina. He is the author of Potential, Not Pathology, Helping Your Clients Transform Using Ericksonian Psychotherapy. Low Country Shamanism, and The Year of Living Magically. Paul is passionate about helping others change their limiting life patterns and find the inner resources needed to live more satisfying and meaningful lives. In order to better stand the how to help people transform their lives, Paul has learned from such varied practitioners as world-renowned psychotherapists, Tibetan Buddhist monks, Chinese Qigong masters, and Low Country Hoodoo do- doctors. Paul is also the founder and host of Potential Not Pathology Podcast, which interviews expert therapists from around the world and presents resource-directed, strength-based, strength-based strategies for healing that therapists can use right away. His website is www.paulesley.com and there will be a link on my song. Cl- SoundCloud and all of my social media for you to find him. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, I'm delighted and honored to be asked, Nicole. Thanks.
0: I'm so excited. I um, I just happened to run across to you. So uh, Steve was on your podcast um, from Organic Intelligence.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, Steve Hosker, great guy. Yeah, Steve's a a friend of mine, good guy, good guy.
0: And I studied with him through somatic experiencing for the whole three years, and that's how I kind of came to you, and I think what you're doing is amazing, and I'm an intern, so I haven't gotten to listen to a lot of your podcasts because I'm a single mom, and um, I work full-time, and I'm also kind of like doing this entrepreneurship type things, but it's like... On my feed to listen to more. I think it's really super cool what you're doing. Oh, well, thank
1: you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that uh, folks who are just now coming into the field or are, are uh, reading the blog and listening to the podcast and uh, all that's free for everyone because I just want to make the field, uh, you know, a little more rich and creative. And uh, I'm glad to hear that. You know that's
0: intriguing to you. Yeah, I mean that that was actually kind of why I started my podcast too. Except for I think we're doing different, very different angles. But I wanted rich, free material out there for whoever needed it. So I really yeah. resonate with that. And um, I kind of wanted to just go with whatever's most alive for you, or wherever you would like to start. And I do actually have um, many questions about your what brought you into the field, and also um some of the people and things that you studied with because I'm not familiar with some of them, so I would love to hear more.
1: Oh sure well uh, d- we'll, we'll just start with uh, you're like, your... Question about you know how I came to the field. I, I came to the field a, a little bit later. Uh, my uh, undergraduate work was in history. I still love history, ancient history, and, and those kind of things. But uh, when I was in my thirties, uh, I got really interested in um, psychology and how people change and all of that. Uh, a good deal of that was uh, due to my uh, first wife, who was a uh, who is now a clinical psychologist, and she was in school and. I would uh, read her books and, and kind of devour those things and decided uh, that I, I kind of wanted to, to go into the field as well. And uh, I'm I really excited to, to help people. I think we're all kind of uh, those who feel compelled to go into the field of psychotherapy. Uh, we feel this, you know, desire to help others and, you know, we carry that healer archetype uh, with us and right. I think that... Yeah, some some for me. What I, what I found is when I got into the field, it wasn't quite what I had uh, hoped it would be. It still got a lot of really wonderful magical uh, qualities to it, but I found that uh, it it seemed like we were going a little backwards. It's the the focus uh, on in the session was more on you know, the client deficits, client weaknesses, or the client problem. And all those certainly need to be addressed. uh, I just found that uh, spending excessive periods of time on it never got anybody feeling any better. And uh, I kind of felt that if I was going to be someone who's going to pay money to somebody to help me feel better, and I just started feeling like crap more and more. i probably not think that was a good return on investment. So, uh, you know, I had, to, before I'd really gone into the field, I'd read a good bit about uh, uh, Dr. Milton Erickson, who was a, uh, who is a huge uh, uh, mentor of mine, even though I never met him since he died in 1980. Uh, I was very young at that time, and uh, his insight into focusing on uh, the future that could be created rather than the past that was already done uh, was pretty groundbreaking at the time. And I found that through my research and writing and and, getting to know uh, uh, former students uh, of his, that his his biggest contribution from my perspective is the emphasis on uh, the potential and the resources that each client brings with them. He always felt that every client came in with their own uh, way to heal. Mm. Uh, we we just we didn't need to like uh, overly direct them uh, to keep exploring their past or try to figure out what was you know you know wrong with them. We needed to kind of uh, if we're going to direct them, we need to direct them toward an, a, a way to access and embrace the positive qualities they already have and when they start to do that they start to be able to solve their own problems mm-hmm. and, and this uh, unfortunately still seems in in some cases to to be a uh, uh a concept that a lot of therapists don't uh, don't seem to get I uh, just last week I was at a conference teaching uh, a program I call unlimited resources I just had a book come out about a month ago called unlimited resources and it's all about uh, focusing on client resources so as I got into the field I started to see that there was a lot of focus on uh, client uh, problems and not enough on client resources so- and then sometimes you work the Go ahead, Nicole.
0: Here, do you, do you want to like speak a little bit more to that? I feel like I have, um, a kind of a one-up on a lot of therapists, not in a competition way, but because I did do somatic experiencing, um, and it yeah. was with Steve, um, so it was very resource-based and um, organic wisdom coming forward. So, um, and so before I even actually Graduated my master's program while I was in my practicum. I was also graduating from Somatic Experiencing, which like directly ended up um, correlating to how I sat as a therapist in the room um, and became yeah. strength strength based, but um, a- and internal resources that were already like organic inter- internal resources that were already present. And I kind of wonder if you can kind of speak a little bit more to that um, in a way that would be more informative because sometimes uh, when I like, so Steve's model uh, comes from a, I would say a sensations based um, wisdom that a lot of like mirroring and um, a lot of attunement and a lot of exploration comes about. But I was, I'm kind of wondering from like an external uh, resource place if that's what you're speaking of or are you speaking from internal resources as well um, how would you name some of those things to therapists who do come directly from like a program and like most of the programs I think do uh, look at what's wrong right? Right
1: yeah Uh, to to answer your your question about am I talking about internal or external it's it's both and it's the thing that I love about the, the way I approach things, I'm still refining it and learning. I'm still a student, and hopefully, will always be a student. Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: You become, yeah, you come to master, suddenly your your cup gets a little too full, and uh, you know. But I find that uh, every individual that comes in my office, whether it's for therapy, coaching, whatever, they are so unique, and one resource. For one person, could be external. Another, it could be an internal sensation that, that maybe they haven't accessed in a long time. And by accessing a, that particular emotion or memory or something like that, it gives them uh, something that can help them with what they're going through. Others, it's it, like I say, it's external. It could be a certain task.
0: Um, Yeah, I guess guess I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I guess I kind of misspoke. I mean, Steve does do internal and external um, resources, but I I feel like a lot of um, the teaching was learning how to uncover the internal resources that are already there. Um, So um, when you're sitting with a client, you're using whatever... They, they come to you naturally with that just, like, kind of makes them shine a little more and kind of start there? Yeah, it, it, it's really, uh, I'll give you some examples because, like I said, it's so individualized.
1: I find that the, the biggest issue is that they come with a problem. I mean, everybody goes to therapy or, you know, coaching or whatever. They have a
0: problem. Right.
1: (laughs) And when you have a problem, you set a frame.
0: Mm.
1: And the problem's inside the frame. So now we've already got a frame of the problem. Well, anything you do inside the frame of a problem is tied to the problem. So if I say, oh, I've got this problem, I need to seek a solution. Well, just the very act of seeking a solution we're still in the frame of a problem.
0: Oh, interesting. So if, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. So if I have, let's just say I'm uh, I'm uh, really uh, anxious about, uh, you know, dealing with a certain individual. That's my problem. I, I get anxious around a certain individual. Well, uh, by helping me learn to, uh, you know, uh, deal more effectively with my emotions or, or you know, spot my uh, irrational beliefs about it—all that's helpful, but yet it's still in the frame of, of a problem. It's still in there. This is your solution, right? Whereas a resource may be uh, something that's outside that that frame. Let me give you an example. I, years back, I was working with this young woman, and I had only seen her once or twice, and she was about 19 years old. She had to, it was depression was her problem. And then one day, uh, she kind of showed me, she usually wore long sleeves, and so she pulled up her sleeves, and a wonderful act of trust, she showed me where she had been cutting herself, and she had been cutting herself for quite a while, and there was a lot of cuts on her arm, and there were places to where they had almost certain uh, patterns, so she couldn't cut there, so she found ways to cut around the cuts. Right. And... You know, so already, if you're you know, the traditional trained, we have a problem. Okay, here's the, the or she's depressed, she's cutting, that's all in the brain. So I looked at her arm, and what occurred to me is what great visual spatial ability she had mm-hmm. to be able to cut in that way. Mm-hmm. So I asked her, I said, you know, you have this incredible ability to create these geometric designs and patterns Uh, do you draw are you an artist and she kind of you know first of all she was a little surprised because I guess she thought I was going to do the usual therapist spiel and right uh, you know but uh, she said well I like to draw and we started talking about art and creativity because she was very creative to be able to cut in all those multiple different patterns in different ways and then to hide it that was very creative A conversation led to her interest in graphic arts, which then led to a conversation about art college and going to college. Mm -hmm. And then her homework was to, you know, we have an art institute here in South Carolina. She was supposed to go get some information. And then our next session, we discussed her going to, to fulfill her dream of being a graphic artist. All of this changed the whole frame, and she started cutting less, started becoming depressed last mm. because the resource she brought in that wasn't activated was her creativity, right. her visual spatial intelligence.
0: Right. And I
1: think if we focused on, okay, why is this happening? Let's focus for reasons. Let's focus, you know, let's spot your your your, your thoughts about that. And I'm not saying that that's, you should never do that, but I felt in that case she already had this incredible ability. And in, By changing the frame where the frame was, uh, depressed girl who cuts, now we open up to the resource, extremely creative woman investigates career in graphic arts. Now, that's changed the whole focus.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: Um, uh, That's kind of uh, a quick off-the-cuff example of what I mean by like an external resource, but at the same time, it's also an internal
0: resource. Right, it's kind of both, right. Well, and I think yeah. it's super, maybe could you speak to, um, because I really believe in the interpersonal field and then also like something about, and I'm not really quite sure, but something about like the witnessing, right? Like that happens when somebody, when you're sitting with somebody or even me, like i I still go to therapists, right? So like when I have my, an experience happen, and, and it's witnessed the power of that, like Um, gaining momentum and like something about what you just said is striking me as like that interpersonal field of you finding that resource in this way and then holding it and then having it be reflected and mirrored and then have having it be a creation where she's being seen in this way like I, I just wonder like what you think about that
1: Well, uh, I still uh, believe, and the research continues to show this. Uh, I have a friend uh, by the name of Scott Miller, and Scott is one of the uh, preeminent researchers on psychotherapy outcomes. I mean, for 20, 30 years, he and uh, his colleagues have been uh, researching, and one of the things that they found out is that specific theories – and techniques have really no true bearing on outcome. Oh, the
0: interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, we're sold a bill of goods about, quote-unquote, evidence-based uh, therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it's all evidence-based.
0: I right. mean, every therapy
1: is evidence-based. But, uh, you know, people uh, kind of misunderstand. Sometimes it's marketed a certain way. But what they found is the most common um, factor in, in patients and clients who get better is, again, going back to what Carl Rogers said, you know, forever uh, ago, was the relationship, the mm. interaction between the therapist and the client, or clients, if you're working with families and couples and all of that. Yeah. Well, this sets up, for me, this, this idea, and again, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day, because this is nothing new, in that you go back into the the early days of uh, family therapy and people like Gregory Bateson and the Mental Research Institute and, and those guys, where they were talking about how uh, cybernetics uh, was kind of a model used in uh, uh, with uh, families, in that if uh, you're a part of a system, you know your behavior changes the system. But when we apply that to the therapy room if we're a part of the system of a live interaction that's happening with that person right in front of us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then the best way to help them change is to change ourselves
0: mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm.
1: And so when when somebody presents something with courage, look, I'm cutting my arm, how I'm responding, therefore changes that interaction, mm-hmm. changes that frame. So yeah. I think that, that, as you say, witnessing that that uh, you know uh, interaction. that it, it's, If you want them to change, you got to change you. And instead of you know, I'm, I'm going to direct you as an outside observer, uh, and uh, you know, you're kind of like a lab uh, <laughs> and I'm going to okay. Here's the new technique that I'm going to do. I'm going to do this to you. Right. I'm doing any of this. I'm doing this with you. You and right. I are co-creating. Right. Right. And right. Right. I think I think we forget that in our field
0: sometimes. Yeah. Well, I come from um, a transpersonal lens uh, to to a default from <laughs> before I entered somatic experiencing. I would have said I was uh, so bypassed, like I was transpersonally inclined to the, like, mth degree. And, like, something about that has, like, made... The way I work with clients, um, I, I feel like I'm in a co-creational field. And I also feel like, I don't know, but, you know, like we say, I, I work at a nonprofit. And so you have to, like, you know, write your your notes in such a way that, like, look, like, in, like, say the methods you're using and what what techniques you're using. But bottom line, I think it all kind of comes down to, like, attachment and Almost like it feels very primal. I'm working with children mostly. I do work with family systems as well, but uh, mostly children. And it feels like attachment and reparenting. That that's what I feel like I'm mostly doing, regardless of anything else that emerges. And 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 I think that that is like part of the co-creation field and like uh, about like what we're doing, like being being in it with them. And um, I kind of wonder what you think about that. Cause you've got, you've have a really diverse background where you've gotten to study with, um, a lot of different traditions. And, um, I think that that can provide many different lens lenses that like healing can take place. And, and I was wondering, maybe you can speak to that, like outside of a theoretical, um, psychotherapy lens, like attachment, um, and put it into, like, what else you've done. And if you could speak a little bit about what low country hoodoo is, too, because I don't I don't know anything about this, and I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no worries, no worries. Well, uh, to start with, as far as uh, different traditions and, and all these kind of things that I've done, the uh, the connecting thread that I, I am aware of at this moment, and I'm sure new insights will come as I age and, you know, learn new things, but... All of the people that I have studied with, sat with, watched, read about that really were effective in creating change and helping people create, co create this change, they, they did a couple of things. The first, and again, we see this more and more in, in our uh, psychotherapy research, is they had to have an expectation.
0: Um, wait, you, like you the know? client, you mean? like So the client comes in with an expectation, is that what you're saying?
1: I'm thinking that both people need an expectation.
0: Okay.
1: If you don't, if you, as the therapists don't have the expectation that change can take place. Oh yeah.
0: Then
1: you know that's going to be an issue. At the same time, you also you need to uh, instill in your client that change can happen. Right. 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 It's, yeah, if somebody comes in and says, "Oh, I've got this this problem. I'm I'm hearing uh, voices, and I, I, I'm just I, I can't sleep." And and if we go, "Wow, ooh, hearing voices, damn," oh man, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of rough there, you know. Um, as opposed to hearing voices, is that it? can't sleep okay yeah okay yeah no worries yeah we will work on that just that very change says okay there's an expectation that there can become uh, an adjustment in this person's experience so creating that expectancy the second thing for me is that it's the experience our brains learn by experience Mm -hmm. and when we don't have an alive experience in our therapy session. Uh, it, it doesn't have as, as much of an impact on us. Now, I've noticed with uh, other other uh, traditions and systems and things I've studied, they make it an experience. I mean, let, let's be honest. Uh, uh, if you go to uh, it's one of the – I've studied with some um, uh, Tibetan uh, teachers, and uh, they could just easily say, okay, here's your mantra, go off and do it. Mm-hmm. But they take you through this ritual, this experience, right. of, to kind of alter your consciousness. Right. Uh, the same thing I found with with low country voodoo doctors. Now, to tell you in your audience what that is, uh, this area uh, that I live in in South Carolina, the North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, the coastal areas, we call the the low country simply because it's low and swampy, and Hoodoo is uh is a, the non-religious, uh, kind of a magical and healing system that was, uh, predominantly, originally utilized by, uh, African, uh, slaves when they were brought to the United States. It was aspects of their old, uh, African religion that got mixed in with, uh, with, uh, kind of Protestant Christianity. Now, voodoo is similar, but, uh, that's, uh, it has, uh, it's more of a religious base, and it was mixed in with a uh, Catholicism. Mm. But a Hoodoo doctor, which we actually call down here root doctors, because they would use roots to heal, and sometimes uh, roots would be a uh, magical ambulance that they would they call that or healing. They, that uh, if if your problem wasn't physical, it was spiritual. So you go to the root doctor. And the Root Doctor would assign certain rituals for you to do or give you certain tasks. Basically, he or she, because uh, Root Doctors can be both, uh, would create an expectancy
0: and an experience. Right. When
1: you went in you to see the Root Doctor, he or she was a powerful being. They, they projected this power and that, you know... Uh, I mean, just, I remember, you know, Nicole, one time I remember talking to, to one of them and just listening to him talk and the cadence he would use when talking to me. It was just an. Ex- I remember I was sitting there and he says something to the effect of, you know, Dr. Leslie, right now what you're asking me about is not what spirit has brought you today to ask me. Mm. And just by taking this force of, you know, and it went on, He says, spirit is telling me in this moment, this one sacred moment to tell you something, I'm going to tell you something. Mm -hmm. But this is from spirit. And it's like, whether you believe in that stuff or not, it creates an experience.
0: Yeah.
1: That casual day-to-day kind of thing we don't have. And then when you put in rituals and, uh, you know, every dancing, drumming, all these kinds of things are there to alter patterns.
0: Right. So, right. by
1: altering these patterns at this at the conscious and the unconscious level and doing things and creating this alive co-creating experience all these traditions are really doing the same thing it's to alter our awareness about ourselves and about our environment
0: see like you're talking you're you're talking about all of this and like and, and I'm, like, thinking, like, well, this is why I'm so drawn to the transpersonal world. Like, these type of experiences. Like, I'm, like, oh, okay. Well, so the next thing I need to do is go to low Country Hoodoo Doctor and, like, have the experience. Because there is something about, like... I, I don't know it's my belief system because I'm holistic, something something about, like, there's something on the body realm and then the mental realm and then the spiritual realm, and, and so, like, I kind of hold that as, like, real, whatever that is. I don't label it in any certain way, but, like, I'm thinking, like, what... What is so powerful about, like, dance and these rituals and these mantras and, like, and then going and, like, like, what is it? There's something about it that does change, like, our experience of self and the world around us.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think what it is, well, number one, we can never get away from the impact that something that we label in our mind as exotic is. Mm. When something's exotic, it's it's surprising. It creates novelty, and uh, uh, Ernest Rossi, who is a, was a student of Doctor er, uh, Milton Erickson, and is one of the and to me one of the preeminent researchers in mind body neurobiology, always talks about how novelty is what can create neurogenesis, the creation and um, and activation of new neur- uh, neurons. Mm. And so, if something is is exotic, it automatically Uh, can facilitate some change. Mm -hmm. A a quick, you know, kind of a a, a metaphor. I had a a dear friend of mine uh, who's a wonderful psychologist, brilliant lady. She's lived in New York City and Paris, France her whole life. That's where she works. Those are her her places. And she's traveled other places, but she's never been to the South. So she came down to visit me for about a week uh, last year. And the things that were so amazing to me is, everything she was getting so excited about, speaking of so neat, was so ordinary to
0: me. Right. You
1: know, it was, we went to a, a barbecue place.
0: <laughs> I'm in South Carolina. We
1: go to a barbecue place. You know, but she was taking pictures of the staff and the food and got the, the, the cook out to take a picture <laughs> with him. And, it, you know, it's just like, it's just a barbecue place. Her is Suzanne. So it's just a barbecue bar. But to her... Uh, it was, oh, it's exotic. Right. And and much in the way that if I was in Paris and she'd show me around, oh, wow, this is so different, it's exotic. Right. So we can never underestimate the power of the exotic. Now, to me, as a side note, the problem is that when we go in search of the exotic as a way to to help us heal, we sometimes dismiss the importance of the ordinary.
0: Yes. And I'm kind of glad you're naming that because that's maybe where I got hung up with the transpersonal stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens. It happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of it. I mean, I was learning uh, years back Dr. Erickson's work and, you know, he's primarily famous for his incredible interventions and in hypnosis. So I went off and learned are everything you, I could about hypnosis.
0: And are, you, are you also a hip, um, hypnotherapist? Do you do that as well?
1: I do. I do. Uh, I do. I don't do it as much as I used to because it used to be exotic. <laughs> and now it's ordinary
0: <laughs> right, right. but I, I
1: do i do it I do it along you know as a, as an adjunct to uh to to uh, the regular treatment, but you know the ordinary we we the ordinary may be as a therapist sitting in the room and just being present well mm-hmm. that's not the latest technique, but it's ordinary, but oh my goodness it's ordinary so important.
0: Yeah. You know, so yeah, having
1: that balance between the exotic and the ordinary so going back to to what you were kind of commenting on it, I think those, all those traditions of dancing and, and chanting and all that it's designed to interrupt patterns mm. or to give us access to, to out of the ordinary things I mean when we have an intense experience, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's still, that experience is what transforms us. We can think about things all day long. You know, we can think about, uh, boy, I need to uh, I need to trust more. Boy, it sure would be nice to trust. I mean, but the it experience sure would. Of trust,
0: <laughs> and,
1: yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah. Uh, the, the experience of trust is so much different uh, than actually thinking about the experience. Right. And I think... In the therapy room, we spend so much time talking about and thinking about that we forget to actually do those things and um, create those patterns, uh, new patterns, and adjust old patterns.
0: You know, I like... I
1: think that all are very important stuff.
0: No, and I like that you're speaking to this. So, like, um, my therapist, he doesn't even let me or I mean I could but he would prefer prefer not like for me to go in any of my stories right like it, he he want it, any of my themes are going to be recreated in the field of him and I anyway and so like he is very much about keeping in the experience of what's actually arising in the therapeutic uh, realm in the room and the funny thing about that is like previously I had not had any therapist who ever did that. Like, um, I would be way in my stories and, um, it, it was like great. I could like tell my stories and I felt a little bit better after I left, but I never really felt complete or like something shifted. And it's funny you bring up trust, but I have like a big trust theme. Like it's huge. Like I don't trust anybody. And I mean I guess I can't say that but like to to a large degree that's very true. And what he's been doing is like challenging that in the room. So like when I when something comes up and I'm talking about it then he'll like actually take a pause and he'll ask me how, is that true right now with me, right? Like or how is how is that like like kind of like reality test? And it's interesting yeah. because a, it's made me a better therapist because now in the room I'm able to sit like that with clients because it's been modeled for me and I can keep things more in the room to have like a shift that happens with my um clients, but with me every time he does that, it's like Huh, funny. I would have said, no, I didn't trust you if I was in my mind. But, like, right here, right now, I'm, like, actually, like, I totally trust you. Which ha- which shifts my whole idea about if I can trust or not. Sure. sure and yeah. it sounds like you're kind of doing that. That's what you're, like, you're keeping it in the room. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit more to that. Because I don't think it's actually, A, it definitely wasn't covered in my room. Like, I mean, in my, like schooling, um, like you're not, you're not taught how to be a therapist. Right. And I, I truly believe like in unconditional positive regard. And I truly believe in setting the right conditions. And I truly believe that the field that's being co-created is like a powerful field, but I feel like, um, when a like a lot of therapists are wounded healers that's definitely my my calling right like I'm going through my own process and then um, now I'm creating healing because I've had the ability and help and resources along the way to help me heal and so like there's this awesome thing that can happen and when you're a wounded healer a lot of times you didn't come up with like the strongest resources in your family system. So like you don't actually know how to do it without like some type of direction or um, yeah, some type of direction. So I was wondering if you can maybe speak more to how you keep it in the room to like have those experiences emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's,
1: that's powerful kind of direction to go because I think that's that, that emerging, that emergent quality uh, in a session. We all know if we've spent any time as therapists therapist in the room, when a session isn't going well, and I don't mean well as in, you know, the person's melting down or they're unhappy. It's just, you know, you don't feel like any change is occurring, that there's no connection. And I find that uh, a lot of times it's uh, again, going back to if, if this is a field uh, I'm, I'm interacting in this what they call second-order cybernetics, I'm a part of this, uh, I have to, to, to go in and check with myself. And I find that, uh, first of all, nothing is, uh, is, is as, it, as we think it is. Um, yes. And what I mean is we often get in this idea of what I call the dichotomy thinking. You know, it's either this or it's not this, for example, we were talking about trust, so I'm just going to use that as an example. Uh, you get a client and says, well, I just don't trust. And so already there's a dichotomy, mm-hmm. and then trust or mistrust or not trust.
0: <laughs> right. And you
1: know, m- one of my favorite sayings that I've ever heard, uh, and the reason it's my favorite is because I came up with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, it will be my favorite too then. <laughs> Okay.
1: <laughs> is that uh, thinking in dichotomies eliminates possibility.
0: Mm. Mm. If we only
1: have two options, trust or not trust, right. we have eliminated a whole bunch of stuff. Because sometimes it's great to trust, sometimes it's bad to trust. right? And so it, rather than pr- kind of like someone who comes in with these Kind of, it's set in our mind. We all do this. It's set in our minds. It's either this or that. Yeah, I like that we eliminate all the
0: potential. No, and I like that you're um, saying that we all do it. This like goes back to I think who you are as a being. um, From like even just the little part that I read about you in the beginning, it's like potential, not pathology. And like a lot of times when we speak about dichotomy or black and white thinking, it's already kind of. Uh, in the pathological way and I like that you're kind of naming that it's totally normal because you're right we all do it and um, something that you just said like is really settling in in a new way for me like I always think of it like black or white but like life is really lived in like this gray area that's where all potential can happen but something about how you just said it made me think of like Oh, yeah, like if it's not this or that, then then you're in infinite possibilities, which actually is what the gray is, right? It's just like infinite yeah. possibilities.
1: Exactly. As uh, One of my mentors, uh, Bill O'Hanlon, likes to, to say sometimes, he says, I do it that way every time except when I don't. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's funny, but it's it's that case. It's like uh, if I'm a cognitive therapist, I'm going to do cognitive therapy every time except when I don't. Right. Well, you know, just the fact that we're labeling ourselves a cognitive therapist or a, a transpersonal therapist or an Ericksonian therapist. Right. We've already set up this. Uh, uh, what uh, Gregory Bates and the renowned uh, anthropologist and cyberneticist talked about the difference that makes the difference we set up a distinction mm. and then I'm this and not that well mm. that's that's so limiting. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, so, so sometimes I'm going to totally trust, absolutely, 100%, and sometimes I'm not going to trust, 100%, and sometimes I'm going to trust a little, and sometimes I'm going to trust a lot. Sometimes I may not trust at all, but then at the last minute, I may trust, and that's okay, you know?
0: Oh, my God, you're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> like, seriously, that's awesome. I'm going to start going, I'm going to start seeing those things all the yeah. time. And I think it's funny that your friend says that because I always say, I'm awesome until I'm not.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we might need to change that. I'm not awesome until I am. <laughs> I'm
0: not awesome until I am. <laughs> you're really funny. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so your your podcast is kind of going into these, like, potentials with other people in the community, and then you guys are kind of unpacking ways that therapists can use um, this information?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's really interesting um, how this all came about, and it's kind of come together, is that uh, some of the podcasts may talking and and giving information about different ways to to do things and see things. And other times I've been very fortunate that I've gotten some really amazing interviews with some uh, well-known or going-to-be-well-known therapists uh, who are actively applying this concept of focusing on client strengths, resources, potential, instead of weaknesses, deficits, uh, pathology. And uh, it's—I've uh, heard uh, from people who who aren't even uh, psychotherapists, people who do coaching. Uh, I've heard people in the medical field who uh, heard from them who, who enjoy listening to it because, you know, we all deal with people. In every profession, we deal with people. Yeah. So if we can find ways to be more active about how we view reality or our perception of reality so that it maximizes not only our potential but the people we deal with potential, uh, it, it can be a positive thing. But the focus is primarily for uh, therapists. So I've, I've got uh, some some wonderful guests, and uh, it keeps growing and growing. And, uh, I, and the great thing is I get to learn every time, you know, I, as you well know, doing this kind of work that you're doing, interviewing people, we get to enjoy and learn and share, but it's, it's really, it's a validation of the work we're doing and where we're going and and we get new ideas. So, Oh, it's it's, so uh,
0: inspirational. It's like, I feel like, um, I've hit the jackpot of knowledge like somehow and that was not why I like did it I did it because I just wanted to be embedded in community still and have these conversations that I wasn't having anymore because I wasn't in school um anymore and like the conversations that kind of like are just juicy and then I also just I work with um just a Clientele that comes from lack of, and I wanted to be able to just give back in any way that could help people that would be free because money is a thing, and and it's funny because like I just I feel like I'm getting more than I could have ever even imagined because I wasn't expecting it to come from this lens. Like it's just like like talking to you, you've like like even the laugh, like you you've just made me laugh about like funny things that like just feels good right on top of I just learned something about hoodoo doctors and like I'm like totally digging your frame of reference and like the way you view things and yeah it's just like I feel so fortunate really. Uh,
1: Well thank you and and likewise because sometimes you know for for those of us uh, you know we need validation from people who find our ideas useful so and and so it's a it's a, a fair exchange i think you know the universe really works on fair exchange
0: yeah and
1: you know when when we had the big bang you know we had the you know the universe expanded but yet it contracted and so it's like it's forward backward enough for gravity to to happen to support us And I think sometimes we forget that we need fair exchange, particularly in our field. We want to give, 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 but we also need back
0: yeah I mean
1: uh, you know hey I, I'll give you all this and you don't don't worry about paying me or, or don't worry about <laughs> bartering or don't worry about anything and I'll just give you well that's not fair exchange right and, and I think we, we get out of I'm mean, just my own belief here we get out of alignment with the, the universe mm. and if we're offering something to somebody that can help them we need something back and whether it's a product or service or even sometimes just you know a good conversation or a compliment or hey you that really helped me, and you're really good at what you do, that kind of validation.
0: Yeah. So having
1: that inter- interaction and, and exchange, I think it's important for everybody, I mean, in general, but particularly in our field.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and then I kind of wonder, like, what you've always just liked to write? Like, because I have, I have, like, I'm writing, and I'm not a writer. As you know, I'm Listexic listex
1: lick. how did <laughs> you- <laughs> yeah yeah for those who are listening that was a joke I gave to Nicole right before she hit the record button she said she was dyslexic and I said so you're a listexic and I think I've screwed you up on that now but, <laughs> now, but, uh, I
0: can- <laughs> now I can't even pronounce that right <laughs> um but um I'm writing I'm, writing, I'm- Just because it's just something I'm I'm called to write. It's an obviously it's an experiential book on like ego states and um, what I think is super cool. And I was talking about someone about you today to someone because most of my interviews have been with people that somehow have been like their friends or acquaintances or colleagues or coworkers workers um, or mentors and there's only been very few people so far that have gone out of that like this is my first conversation with you and I was super excited to talk to you because I feel like just by your little bio it's obviously not a parallel process because I'm not where you are quite yet but I'm I'm strength-based and I'm currently writing a book and I have a podcast and I'm getting my PhD and I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy is like kind of doing the stuff that like I want to do or are in the process of doing. And, um, I kind of would want, wanted to know about your writing process. Like was that kind of first, are you a writer by nature or was that like, what, what came first?
1: Well, um, I I used to, when I was a kid, I used to like to try, and that's an operative word there, try to write uh, stories and things like that, but I have, uh, I've usually been a pretty good writer. A lot of it I want to acknowledge publicly to Ms. Murphy, my 7th and 8th grade English teacher, who had a diagram sentences ad nauseum for uh, two school years, but it has a uh, I've learned not to put prepositions on the end of sentences and things like that. So, uh, hats off to you, Miss Murphy, if you' uh, happen to ever listen. but uh, uh, I, I took a couple of years back, I actually took a writing course, which I highly recommend. Uh, from my friend and mentor Bill O'Hanlon. Now Bill's written like 37 books. He's been on Oprah. Wow. He's uh he's just a great and he's just a great guy. I give him grief every time I see him and it's he's just got a great sense of humor. And uh he has a a, a, a program called Get Your Book Written. And I think it's getyourbookwritten.com. And uh, it, I went through the course, and uh, it really helped me in my writing, learning not just about how to write, how to frame things, also how to deal with publishers, uh, things like don't write your whole book until you get a contract, and you know, little you know, nuggets of wisdom over oh. his thirty uh, you know, years of, of writing. So I'd, I'd recommend that to you and anyone else. I sometimes feel like writing is, uh, is blood on the keyboards. Sometimes it's a, it's a chore. Other times it is, I feel, uh, the muse, the inspiration, and it flows very easily. Uh, I've read a good bit about other writers, and I find that some days you just got to sit down and start writing. And even if it's, you end up throwing that or deleting that or you know, whatever it is, throwing it away, it, just something about the process. So if you're writing uh, a book or articles, just write. Mm-hmm. And uh, just also learn to have a, a little bit of uh, non-attachment, which is uh, important anyway in our daily life, but uh, non-attachment with your writing. Because the things that you think are awful, or just, eh, they're okay. Some people will think are amazing, amazing. And then the things that, I, I type things and tears come to my eyes. I'm so moved by what I just wrote. And then people are like, eh, didn't do anything for me. So we just have to learn to kind of just accept what is and, and just not attack. But, but it's just, you, you got to do it. Eventually it gets easier because you kind of figure out, particularly if it's nonfiction, certain ways, you know, formatting and things like that. But the other thing too, just to, to add this in, it always helps if you're incredibly passionate about what you're writing about because there's going to be days you don't want to write. And sometimes books just fall in your lap. I mean, the, the I wrote a, a book called The Year of Living Magically, which was basically chrono- uh, was a chronicle of my year uh, of being separated and divorced and how I realized uh, this life sudden life change that uh, I have lost connection to my right brain creativity and nature and all this mm. I've become too logical rational and scientific and how to balance both of those worlds and it was just that my journey and exercises that I created for me to get better and it just kind of fell into place and mm. other times where you're doing more research it is uh, it is a bit of a Tough time, but uh, real quickly, my, my advice is just write just just go for it, and then get the best mentors you can find. and That's with anything in life. Yeah, if you could find somebody like you know my my friend Bill. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. Um, you yeah, know, uh, I'm going to check him certain out. Certain of, yeah, yeah, highly recommend him. And tell him I sent you. Okay, and I Anyone will. listening, tell, tell him I sent you. So <laughs> you know.
0: Yes, Dr. Paul J. Leslie sent you. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, they, yeah, do, something, do something you love. No, I appreciate that. Like, I, I am just writing. Like, I mean, it's. I feel like it's just coming out, and it's not. I'm not a conventional writer anyway, and it's from an experiential place. And I'm kind of like just even messing around with it, being a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, anyway, but. Yeah, I need to like figure out what the next steps are, and I and so thank you. This will be probably the next step for me to figure out what my next steps are with it. Great, great. Um, yeah. I look
1: forward to reading your your book when it comes
0: (laughs) out. Okay, yeah, I would be excited, and then you can tell me what you liked and what you didn't like. So, like, what for my next book? Because I'm serious. I like I'm so inspired by you. Like, I want to do a few books. Like, I I just want to put things out there because I feel like. I feel like this journey of being human is so deep and so profound and it can just kind of go by, right? Like I wish I, I wish I have been writing since I've been 15 to be quite honest. And like, um, cause the massive change and the lessons that were so profound at the time, as you grow older, like they become a little bit removed and, um, I just, yeah, I just think that writing can really capture something that um, capture and preserve it in a way that nothing else really can
1: yeah and and there's, there's lessons we learn along the way you know that's that's the medium to share that's how people learn is by reading or even just listening like say to podcasts, but sharing our our lives and our information because life it, it it can be very profound our human but at the same time it's incredibly absurd. Yeah. Life the most absurd thing and we get <laughs> so serious and we forget the humor and the spontaneity and the absurdity <laughs> of life and we sit you know and one way to to you know stop being absurd uh to start being absurd is to just stop taking it all so seriously and just you know a, a statement like uh, you know, I, I, I never do that except when I do. You know, that's an absurd <laughs> statement. And I think if we can welcome absurdity in our lives and in our writing, uh, you know, these these things kinda kinda open up. I, I one of the things that's been most important to me in my, my career, uh I, I've certainly been inspired by, you know, various therapists and all that, but uh the Marx brothers and Don Rickles are just as inspiring to me in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. as any of the great therapists I've, mm-hmm. I've studied because it, they're absurd, they're funny. It's just, you know, it, it's nothing that, that, that happens. You know, Groucho Marx saying to Margaret Dumont, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life, but that's not saying much for you. I mean, it's this <laughs> absurd kind of thing, and I think when we can approach life that way, whether it's with our writing, or therapy in general, uh, a lot of these barriers just kind of disappear because I think absurdity keeps that humanness that we all have in
0: perspective well and i wonder if if you could like before we wrap up because i know we're gonna run we're running close to time but like i wonder if you could speak to humor a little bit because i found on my journey of healing like i i mean people thought i had humor like they said i was funny and i was laughing a lot but i wasn't like really i was super disassociated so i wasn't really um I, i wasn't connected to the experience and to be honest humor and kind of laughing at myself and laughing at the absurdity of life has just really started to come online for me the last, like, um, I don't know, like, two years-ish. And I think Steve Steve talks about, like, the trauma vortex and uh, how, like, that can really, like, create difficulty to, you know, find the happiness or pleasure in life. And um, I'm kind of wondering if you could just briefly speak to how to activate that for people. Because I feel like it's a lot easier than said than done a lot of times.
1: Yes, uh, I, I agree. Um, well, one thing I would say, just for people in general, for therapists in particular, if you're not someone who's funny, who's naturally open to being funny, don't try to be funny. <laughs> because it's just usually bad, but I think most people have a sense of humor, and uh, I, to, to kind of you know answer the question about uh, you know finding humor and accessing humor, it, it requires us to kind of step outside the again stepping outside the, the frame of a problem. Mm. Because if there's a lot of humor inside the frame, the problem's probably not really that bad. I mean, if you think about it in general, if you can get somebody to, I mean, respectfully, of course, to laugh at their problem or some aspect of the problem, find some humor in it, it seems to loosen up those constricting mental constructs that we have about the problem. mm um, you know, if we if we have someone who's and what uh, much like you were saying earlier, I in my present work, I work with most every population, people from seriously mentally ill to, you know, gee doc, I don't know where to go with my life. You know, what kind of job should I take? And so, it's given me this this ability and this gift of uh, you know getting to see what people have more in common than how they're different, and I find that humor. Having humor and not taking ourselves so seriously—I love self-effacing humor. <laughs> uh, I will make myself the butt of the joke more times than not, and then I'll tease people. And I find that most people, if your intention in your art is pure, and you start teasing them, they actually enjoy it. Yeah, not, you know, make fun or putting people down. I can't tell you how many times I've had, uh, particularly. Uh, women who, you know, they've had some traumatic experiences uh, with men, and so they don't trust men. Right. And, you know, I'm the only therapist they can get in to see, and so they come in, so they're, you know, shielded up, but by the end of the session, they even tell me if they're leaving, and even sometimes even hugging me, and I never thought I could just open up to a man like this.
0: What, what a cool... What the common
1: factor was, it's the humor. <laughs>
0: Well, what a cool corrective emotional experience, right? Like, um, like how, how awesome that you're able to provide them that, like, actually I was with a female therapist forever and now I'm with a male and it's, like, and I have trauma in my past, so it's been actually, like, more profound to sit in a room and have this, like, corrective experience with a male in this healthy way than, like, I mean, my female therapists were awesome as well, but it's just completely different. It's completely different, and how cool that you can provide that. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, like I say, it's, it's a it's a gift, not that it's my gift, but it's a gift for me. That I get to interact with these, specifically these ladies, but also gentlemen. Everybody comes in with their stuff and, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to have fun with them. Because at the end, if we're all laughing, we're all connecting, and we're all, again, it's all the absurdity. Uh, the worst thing we can do is, is get too uptight about things. Paul Waspawick's book, classic book, I love the title, The Situation is Hopeless But Not Serious.
0: Mm. <laughs> and
1: I, I think we need to look at life that way oh and,
0: and, and see humor. I need to read that book actually. Mm-hmm. That is like that title, like because seriously, like you usually like hopeless and serious usually is like completely merged, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't really feel like I'm a hopeless person. I actually have like I can ho- hold a lot of hope, but. Um, there. So,
1: so you're. So you're not hopeless
0: until I am. Until you are. But you can be <laughs> hopelessly
1: loved. You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've done that one. I've done that one too. <laughs> Haven't we all. <laughs> but the, but no, I think that that's really like something I want to read that because like especially particularly with um, more depressed clients, like I can uh-huh. feel the pull of being in. Uh, the hopelessness and the seriousness right but like if you could if you can hold that that it's hopeless but not that serious actually like what could totally like emerge from that space Ah, i love it thank you oh
1: sure Sure thanks
0: well i really appreciate your time and this has been such a pleasure and i i hope that one day our paths actually cross and i can um actually meet you and shake your hand and thank you so much just thank you
1: Oh, well, thank you, uh, Nicole. It's, it's just an honor to to be asked, and it's been a delight. And uh, and likewise, I'd love to to meet and chat, and uh, I'm sure we will. Because uh, you know, this, this universe is a strange place, and sometimes uh, you know people connect, and, and you know you never know what what's going to happen, and they get to uh, to form important bonds, and uh, and just you know makes makes kind of like a magical. Uh, existence because we never know what's going to be happening for us so I've just been delighted to chat with you today.
0: Thank you, me too it's been an honor and anybody who's been listening I will have his website on all of the social media and also on SoundCloud and you can link to him and hopefully you will enjoy his podcast and I would love to hear any feedback and thank you so much for all of your support and kind Loving words and take care. And again, you can find me on pretty much all social media on Coleology, my nickname Coley, and then Ology. Thank you. Take care and have a good night.